Well, the scripture reading this morning, we are still in a, in a series on discipleship. And today we're reading Matthew 26. And as we get closer to the end of the series, we are looking at the end of Jesus' life. He's with his disciples one final night before he goes to the cross. And we're reading that section in Matthew 26. This is verse 36 to 46. Turn, a new, turn with me in your Bible to that section, and this is the reading of God's word. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here. Watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face. He prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came. So leave for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us get... Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning from wherever we are, and we ask God for your guidance because we need for you to speak to us. Because we hear so many words this season, so many words from our family, friends, from experts, from the news outlets. But God, most of all, we need to hear from you. So I pray that this morning you would speak to us, speak to your servant only which is true. Pray that this this word would build us up, would encourage us, would lead us to to be clinging to you. So I pray that, Father, you would bless this time wherever we are. Speak to us through your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank the worship team for coming out here. And I want to thank you all online for joining and it's been uh it's been a difficult season you know it's only been two weeks i was just thinking about this it's only been two weeks since we last met at the art chair and that's felt like it felt like a year ago because a lot has happened in the last two weeks a lot has changed everything is changing and day to day hour to hour things are constantly changing and uh, a lot of people including myself struggle with anxiety it's understandable we don't know what is happening some people are scared others are panicking and during this time i think we come to to terms with our own mortality we come to terms we expose the illusion that we are in control uh this time is a test of our worldview you know if you're not a believer if you don't believe in god you might have said i'm not scared of death death is a part of of life it's a circle of life but this panic happens this pandemic happens and maybe you're not so sure anymore maybe you are fearful of what is coming 
even for Christian people, uh, this is a test of our worldview. Do we really believe God is in control? Is he sovereign? Do we really believe Jesus conquered death and he can turn, uh, he can take evil and turn it into good? Do we really believe that deep in our soul? Many of us are facing what in church history has been called the dark night of the soul. Dark night of the soul is a time in our life. It can be it can be brief, it can be years where we can't see God. We have a hard time experiencing God. We question where God is. In Israel's history, the darkest night was a series of plagues that happened one after the other. These were natural, supernatural plagues. And it culminated in one evening in which every single household in that region had one firstborn son who was killed on that night. It was a night of terror and pain. All throughout the Bible, there are dark nights. Through church history, there are dark nights. And as a country, we're facing that kind of dark night. We're unsure of what is to come. F. Scott Fitzgerald said, In a real dark night of the soul, it is always 3 o'clock in the morning. Fitzgerald said, A dark night of the soul is like when it's 3 o'clock in the morning, the dead of the night. You can't go back to sleep. You have all kinds of anxiety. So today we want to look at this idea that Jesus himself went through a dark night. And he gives us guidance. How do we experience that dark night? And we want to see Jesus also gives us hope in the midst of our dark nights. That he's conquered. He's gone through it for us. So this morning I want to just look at two things. Spiritual practices for our dark night. And secondly, the hope for our dark nights. Now I want to start out with this idea of spiritual practices. We've been going through a series of sermons, and Matthew lists this series of sermons of Jesus and his disciples. He is on a journey with them. By the time we get to to Matthew 26, he's been with them for three years, preaching to them, doing ministry with them, building them up, uh, strengthening them, spending time with them. And at Matthew 26, he has one last night with them, one last night. At the beginning of chapter 26, he has a meal with his disciples. They're commemorating the Passover. But at that meal, he gives them all kinds of bad news. He tells Judas, Judas, you are going to betray me. You're going to sell me out. He tells Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me on three separate occasions. This was his best man. Jesus tells them everything in advance to show them that nothing is out of his control. And this is really foundational to getting through difficult times. Nothing takes God by surprise. All the darkness we are experiencing right now and in the future, God knows about, and he's in control of all of that. He wants us to know that in advance. After this meal, Jesus begins to feel ill. The weight of the cross starts weighing on Jesus. He feels literally sick to his stomach. He's in anguish. It says he is sorrowful and troubled. This, there's a deep weight that stuns Jesus. You know, when I was in junior high, I thought my dad uh, was invincible. My dad's kind of an alpha male. He never showed any weakness to me. I've never seen my father cry to this day. I've never seen him cry. He was always uh, a tough guy. He never seemed worried about anything. But when I was in junior high, my dad went through a series of uh struggles. He owned a small business and a disgruntled worker tried to burn it down. Uh, He went through all kinds of financial troubles with his business. And I remember seeing him 
stay up all night. He couldn't sleep for nights in a row. He lost all kinds of weight. And it stunned me as a young man to see my father so vulnerable. This guy, I thought, had no worries at all. Go through such a difficult time. You know, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is, he has all kinds of peace. He's in control of every single situation. He has an answer to all of his critics. He, he walks on the waters. So it must have stunned the disciples this last night to see Jesus disoriented. It must have stunned them to see him so vulnerable. He's asking them for prayer. So how does Jesus handle his dark night? How does he handle this darkness which is overshadowing him? Well, the first thing that Jesus does is that he gets to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane was, uh, as Matthew describes it, an estate. It's probably an olive orchard. In the Greek, Gethsemane means olive press. It's probably an olive orchard. The Gospel of John, John says it was a garden. Uh, Jesus comes. This was probably a regular meeting spot for his disciples. This was the place that they prayed all the time. That's why Judas knows Jesus is going to be there. That's where he betrays Jesus. The first thing that Jesus does in his dark night is he surrounds himself with his closest men, his disciples. In verse 37, he specifically takes Peter, James, and John. Those were his his boys. Those were his men that he was closest to. And he has them specifically pray for him. Here we see Jesus' humanity. He realizes that even in his humanity, in his humanity, he needs his disciples. He says, I've been there for you all my life. I need you this one night to be here for me. In the Old Testament, the high priest, he entered the most holy place one day out of the year. And he made a sacrifice for the whole nation. But it was a terrifying experience for the high priest because if he made one mistake, he would be struck dead. He had literally had a rope tied around his uh his his ankle so that if he died in the holiest of places they can drag him out no one else would be injured historians believe that the night before the high priest that day before the day of the atonement he stayed up all night and all of the priests there's one high priest but there are there are dozens of other priests gathered with the high priest before he went to to the day of atonement and they stayed up all night they prayed for him he was ritually cleansed all the other men surrounded him prayed for him wept with him confessed their sins with him read scriptures to him comforted him strengthened him so that day that he made the sacrifice he would be ready jesus is the the great high priest and that's what he wants the night before he makes the ultimate sacrifice, he is saying, guys, would you come around me? Would you pray with me? Would you speak scripture over me? I need your help. The first thing that Jesus shows us is that in our darkest night, we need to lean on a few faithful friends. That we need people to pray over us and lift us up to God. I know it's hard to do right now in a time of social distancing, but I really want to encourage you to reach out to at least a few people in your life that can consistently pray for you, give you hope, bring you peace, text them, FaceTime with them. Here at our church, we're trying to do Friday night prayers so that you know we can see each other, encourage each other. 
I'm really encouraging you to find a few people. Don't be isolated. I want to encourage you to lean on people, to hope with you, to pray with you. But the second thing Jesus does is that he, in his dark night, he goes to his father in persistent prayer. Listen to what Jesus does in Matthew 26, 39. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It says that Jesus falls on his face in prayer. I think posture is important in prayer uh, so that your posture kind of tells you your what your heart, the posture of your heart. What is Jesus' posture in prayer? It says he collapses in prayer. He's saying, God the Father, I, with all my weight, I lean on you. You are all that I have. Jesus is giving the deepest part of his soul and his sorrow to his Father. It says in verse 39, his prayer is, would this cup pass from me? The cup in the Old Testament was a reference to the wrath of God, the anger of God. And it's a stunning prayer because Jesus is saying, God, I know that the plan for me is to save humanity, to drink of this cup of wrath. But if there is another way, I want to take that other way. Because the more Jesus loved his father, the more bitter that cup would be. Because that cup would mean that he would exchange the, the, the goodness and the joy of the Father for the wrath of the Father, the anger of the Father. Jesus asks, is there another way, Father? Is there something else? Jesus tells us that when we pray, we are to give God our deepest desires. Sometimes I think when we pray, we only pray things that we think God wants us to hear, not what we really want from God. Sometimes we think we need to just pray for spiritual things, but what we are really worried about is our money, our job, the stock market. Well, Jesus says pray for those things. Pray for everything you worry about. I would say that's a good place to start. Pray for all of your fears. Pray for all of your desires. Pray for all your hopes and dreams. It's like God says, I'm giving you a blank check, write anything, pray for anything, ask me anything. And that is how we are to pray. Give God whatever is on your heart, whatever you worry about, dream about, desire. God says, give that to me. Notice that Jesus prays the same prayer again and again. Uh, it says that he prays three times, and he prays persistently because he, he, he doesn't hear God answering him. And that's what happens in our dark nights. In our dark nights, it seems that God is not listening to us. So he repeatedly prays again and again. And that's the encouragement Jesus always gives to us. Keep on praying. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Don't give up in your prayers. As Jesus is praying, he realizes that his disciples are not praying. It says that they were all asleep. Even Peter, who had pledged with Jesus to the bitter end, had fallen asleep. And Jesus asked Peter, you can't even stay up with me one hour. This is one of the most brutally honest pictures of prayer in the Bible. I think it's one of the most, most brutally honest pictures of humanity in the Bible. How many times... Have we fallen asleep while we are praying? 
How many of you guys have fallen asleep while you're praying? All the guys here? My, I, for my for sure, I have fallen asleep while I'm praying more times than I can ever count or remember. It's a basic, uh, it's a brutal picture of our failures to seek God. It shows us our heart that we're constantly falling asleep on him, constantly forgetting him. But here, Jesus gives Peter an encouragement. This is what he says to Peter. He's falling asleep. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The flesh is weak. Jesus said the spirit is willing. We want to meet God. We want to do the right thing. But the flesh is weak. The flesh is any part of our life that is contrary to God. There's a gravitational pull away from God, away from doing what is good, away from doing what is right. There's a pull constantly that we experience that tells us, that draws us away from the presence of God. So what are we to do? Jesus says, watch and pray. And I want to focus on those two words, watch, pray. We have to do both of those things. Sometimes we watch, but we don't pray. That's what a lot of us, including myself, do a lot. We are watching the news. We're watching all these uh, tragedies unfold. We're watching everyone around us panic. We're watching the stock market. We're watching our job, our children, our work. We're constantly watching, but we're not praying. We're not giving those things to God. We're not asking God to intervene. Sometimes we pray, we ask God for things, but we're not watching for how he can work in our lives in the midst of these things. Jesus says, watch and pray. Do both of those things. This last week, uh, Nina was emailing our missionaries in Cambodia. She was talking to our missionary in Cambodia, Susan Lee. She has a husband, Paul, two beautiful sons in Cambodia. And she was sharing how a couple weeks ago in Cambodia and Southeast Asia, people weren't worried about the coronavirus. It was on the news. People weren't worried about it. This last week, uh, people started getting sick in Cambodia. The numbers every day started to double. And now there's a full-on panic in Cambodia. He says the markets are crowded. People are worried. They're anxious. And she has been praying about her family and for her country because the infrastructure is so weak. If they got sick, maybe there's no, there's no bed for them. Maybe there's no doctors who can see them in Cambodia. She was praying for her family and for her country. She was praying that God would be at work. A few days ago, she was talking to her tuk-tuk driver. Tuk-tuk is a motorcycle cab that almost everyone in Cambodia uses. And she was she she had known him for a while, and he was not a believer. Uh, but suddenly she asked her, "Are you afraid?" And you don't seem like you have the fear that everyone else has. What is the hope you have that I need? And she sensed that God was opening his heart to the gospel. Susan says now what she's doing, she's watching, but she's also praying. She's praying, but she's watching for ways that God can be at work. A few months ago, I started using a prayer card. We had a prayer seminar, and I said uh, one of the things I encourage people is to have a card, list out people in your life, list out non-Christians that you can be praying over. I started doing that a few months ago. I have a list of uh, people that I'm praying for, asking God to open their hearts. Last month, uh, one of the the people on my card approached me. It's a woman in my running group. 
And out of nowhere, she asked me uh, last month, she's like, Dennis, uh, I know you're a pastor. Well, I want to go to your church because I, I also heard you're doing evangelism cl- class. Sign me up for that. Out of nowhere, and it blindsided me. It blindsided me. I always thought, I, th- I grew up thinking that evangelism was uh, having a really awkward conversation with someone, uh, interjecting God into a conversation where it didn't belong, something like that. I always thought evangelism was really weird and awkward. Then I realized that evangelism is first is is not first talking to people about God, but evangelism is first talking to God about people. And I was praying for her, asking God to open up her heart. She approaches me, and she asked me, about, I am going to your church. I'm signing up for that class. Give me the information for that. And now everyone on that list, I'm watching. I'm saying, God, I'm now watching for ways that you're going to be working in their lives. And I really encourage you during this time to pray, but also watch for God is at work in mysterious ways. God is at work answering your prayers. Be watchful for his presence and his power. But ultimately, what Jesus does here at the in the garden is he submits to the will of the Father. You know, that's ultimately the thing that God does in the dark nights of our soul. This is really where he's taking us. The dark night is ultimately purify us so that we would live by faith. Notice after Jesus' praise, he says, finally, your will be done. Ultimately, God takes us to the dark nights to purify us. In the dark night, we abandon our idols. We we realize in the dark night that our idols cannot save us. We realize they can't come through from us. One of the lessons I believe of this pandemic for myself is that we can't really trust anything. We can't trust our government. We can't trust our health. We can't trust our job. It's unstable. So many things that we thought we could trust, we realize we actually can't. And ultimately, we, we realize in the dark garden, God, I, I only have you. You're the only thing in my life I can trust. You're the only thing in my life that will not let me down. And so the question finally is this. How do we know God's going to be faithful in that dark garden? How do, how do we know he's going to take us through this? This is the final point. And this is that we can have hope in our dark nights. Jesus is not just a model for how we can get through a dark night. Jesus has also conquered the dark night for us. He's conquered it for us. Jesus' dark night was different than our own. In our dark night, I said we can lean on other people, friends, family, church members. We can lean on God. He got us. But on Jesus' dark night, he had to do it all alone. His friends abandoned him. Uh, Judas betrays him. Peter denies even knowing him. All of his disciples leave him. Ultimately, on the cross, God the Father would turn his back on Jesus. He would do it alone. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane faced the ultimate test. Would he submit to God? Would he say, Father, your will be done? Or would he say, my will be done? That's the ultimate test in the garden. In the garden of Eden, It reminds us of the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, which is another garden, the first garden, Adam faced the test. Would he say to God, God, your will be done? Or would he eat from a tree and say, my will be done? This is my way. I'm going to trust my own knowledge and my own good. But here's the difference. In the Garden of Eden, if 
Adam obeyed in the Garden of Eden, he still would be in paradise. He would actually enter into glory. If he obeyed, he would have life. But if Jesus obeyed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would be crushed. He would face the wrath of God. His body would be destroyed. So what would Jesus do in the Garden of Gethsemane? Would he be like Adam? And in, in what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus obeys where Adam fails. Uh, G- Adam disobeys concerning the tree. Jesus died on the tree. Adam failed and all of humanity falls. Jesus succeeds and in his, in his obedience and his death, he saves a whole people that he has chosen. Jesus' death was on the Passover. I talked about this idea that the Passover was the darkest night. During the event of the Passover, uh, all the people of God, uh, the angel of death would pass over all the homes which had the blood of the lamb on it. And ultimately at this last meal, what we see is that Jesus is the Passover lamb. That's why there's no lamb at the table at the Last Supper. Jesus is that lamb of God. He has taken the curse for us. On the uh, the Passover, uh, the Lamb of God was slain for us. That's why at the last Passover meal, Jesus simply breaks bread and drinks wine. But listen to this last bit at the Passover meal. It's in Matthew 26, 29. And it's interesting what Jesus says about the wine. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. At that Passover meal, they drank wine. Uh, on the last meal, they also drink wine. And Jesus says, we're drinking wine, we're celebrating, because it's a foretaste of the final banquet. There's going to be another banquet that is to come, and we're drinking now because we can celebrate. We can celebrate. We can have a foretaste right now. It's interesting that wine is in the first Passover and the last meal because those were the darkest nights in the Bible. The two darkest nights in the Bible was the, that final plague of the Passover when there would be death in every household. Yet in God's house, in God's people's house, they were drinking wine. Last Supper. This is hours before Jesus would hang on the cross. What are they doing? It's a dark night. They're drinking wine. And Jesus says we can drink wine now even though there's terror and uncertainty because we know that Jesus, the Passover lamb, is slain for us. We know we're going to enter, we're going to exit that darkness into the light. We know that there is a banquet that awaits us so we can celebrate even now. We can have hope in midst of the darkness. We can have joy in midst of the sadness. Because we have hope, the hope of Christ, who is the Passover lamb slain for us. Think about the idea of the night. No matter how dark the night is, we know that morning will break in. No matter how dark the night is, morning always comes. And that's the great hope for us this morning. Rejoice in trials. Rejoice at 3 a.m. We know that the Passover lamb, Jesus, has been slain for us. I want to close with a story. Uh, yesterday, I officiated a wedding uh, of a city-like couple. You know, they had planned to have a, you know, a large uh, wedding. 
uh, in June. And they realized that the probability of that wedding happening was probably not happening. So they decided in its stead uh, to get married this week. They're going to get married in his backyard. And so yesterday, just me, the couple, and their parents gathered in the backyard. And it was just us. And they it was a makeshift wedding. They picked flowers from the backyard garden. Uh, and it was a beautiful day. And I was telling them this is a perfect day to get married because it's a symbol that in the midst of the, broken, the brokenness of this world, there's still beauty. That in the midst of things falling apart, their marriage is a sign that God is still bringing people together. Their marriage is a sign in midst of all that is going on, that God's still at work. He's still bringing beauty and power. God's giving you th- this marriage, this couple, they are testimony in midst of the chaos. There is beauty now, there's beauty to come. God is still at work. We don't have to wait till the epidemic is over to rejoice. We can rejoice right now. <laughs> we can drink a glass of wine like the disciples did in the midst of that chaos. We can rejoice because the king has come. He's risen. He's conquered death. He has conquered the grave. He has gone through the dark night into the day. He tells us to trust him. Would you trust him this morning? Would you rejoice in him? For, for he is our Passover lamb. He is our king. Please join me in prayer. Father, I give you thanks this morning as we gather together from the different parts of the city. God, and we ask that you give us grace. We ask for your kindness and your mercies. And Father, more than anything else in in this time, God, we need a sign of your presence. So pray, Father, that you would be at work. Pray that you would be with us, giving us your peace. Pray that we would be a signpost to so many people around us. God, that you are still at work. So I pray that you'd give us grace. Help us to be people of great faith. Help us to be people who place our hope in you. Thank you, Jesus, that you have gone through the garden of Gethsemane in our place. While we are yet asleep, Lord, you have conquered for us. And we trust you. Thank you so much for the promise that we have. Pray that we can give you hearts in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.